Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bellati. Welcome. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy that you have come in for this episode because it's going to be a really good one. I'm very proud of the research I gathered for this episode and overall just what we're about to learn. It's so honestly so fun. Um, But before I get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, which is all about the history of the wedding industry and all of these things that even as a single woman here sitting with no romantic prospects, I was so interested in what I was learning and I stayed up till like 2 a.m. last night reading Um, old accounts and things and looking into old fashion trends and it's really interesting stuff so definitely stick with us but before I get into that I do want to just kind of be honest with you guys and level with you a bit so I sat down to record this episode an hour ago and I sat down with my tea I was all ready to go things were going great I was recording and usually a rule of thumb for podcasting is I put all my devices on silent put them away from me But for some reason, just in the shuffle of things, my phone was sitting right next to me as I was recording. And as I was recording, I got a text from a friend of mine that I'm not going to tell you details of what was in the text and whatnot, but it just kind of made me a little sad uh, upon first glance of reading it. And it wasn't like, it was kind of like a FOMO sort of sad, you know, FOMO being the fear of missing out and reading it, I felt kind of, I was like, whoa, I feel really excluded right now. I feel kind of sad reading this text and I was sitting here, you know, mid, like in the middle of a sentence, like mid train of thought. And I was like, whoa, I am feeling very sad all of a sudden. And I can't keep talking. Like I, my mood has been deflated. I need to, I don't know what I need to do. I was like very, very conflicted in that moment. But I was like, I can't record. I can't keep talking and pretending like everything's okay because I am really devastated right now. Um, and so I kind of, you know, took a deep breath before reacting because that is something that I've learned in my adulthood. Don't react when you're in the heat of feeling, give yourself a moment to, you know, process things and decide how you want to react. And what I did was I, you know, responded in a way that I am proud of. And then I got up and I went for a walk with my mom. I was like, mom, we're going for a walk. And she's like, okay. So 45 minutes later, um, I got back in the house. I changed into a comfy outfit and we are trying this again. My phone is far away. Uh, But moral of the story here is I just wanted, of course, to be honest with you guys and, you know, tell you what happened because I feel like a lot of people have these moments where they're like utterly devastated in very small ways and you feel kind of selfish for being upset about certain things because there is so much worse going on in the world. My stomach's growling. Did you hear that? Oh my God. It's almost dinner time. Anyway, so I thought that I would just share that because I feel like it is important to be honest when you have moments like that because it makes other people who also experience moments of just like sadness over something maybe kind of stupid in hindsight like after I got back from the walk I was like wow why was I upset over that like it's something so stupid and you know I shouldn't be feeling this way I should understand that you know this is a weird year and hopefully in the future things will look different in terms of you know what I'm able to do with my friends and what you know just all sorts of things so yeah we have moments like that I'm sure during quarantine or just during this really crazy year you've had a few moments yourself where you're like wow am I being really dramatic right now like why am I so sad about this thing that just seems so small 
And the truth of the matter is, you know, all feeling, no matter how stupid it might be in hindsight or that you might think it is, all feeling is extremely valid and you should never get mad at yourself for feeling because that means you still have humanity left and you're still allowing some softness to exist in you because otherwise you just become as hard and as cruel as the world and no one needs that okay so anywho I just wanted to share that before I got into the episode because I just thought it was a lesson that I wanted to kind of touch on and learn and also share with you guys so anyway I digress I want to kind of reel things in and remember where I went with this when I was recording earlier Uh, I did such a good job earlier too and then there's like a long silence because I'm reading this text and reacting to it in anger internally so basically to put it plainly not much is really happening in my personal life these days. And in earlier days of Thick and Thin, I would come on here and sit with you guys in my glass of wine and recount all of these juicy, crazy stories and things from my own life. But in recent weeks, I've been kind of, you know, digging into history and finding juicy stories there. And I'm honestly kind of happy with how it's been going. I hope you guys are enjoying hearing these little tidbits and stories as much as I enjoy creating them for you, despite the fact that there's no real exciting dates or, you know, gallivanting around the city to speak speak of and report about to you guys that doesn't mean I have run dry with stories to tell you guys know I always have a story up my sleeve and today is no different Uh, we are going back in time once again as we do we should make like a thick and thin time machine like if I ever have a pop-up for this podcast or any sort of like meet and greet it will include a time machine maybe not a real one because I don't know if those even exist but I like to think that they do Anyway, so you guys know, you know, because of my fascination with history and with the past and things like that, it just kind of makes sense that I'm an extremely curious person. And I'm sure a lot of you guys are really curious too, because otherwise you would not sit through these episodes and you want to know what happens next and you're interested in a good story. And I don't know about you guys, but I was always that kid growing up that was just always asking, why, 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 mom? Why is the sky blue? Why this? Why that? And it's kind of transitioned into my adult years because now instead of asking my mom, you know, why is this? Why is that? I'm asking Google, my good friend Google. And my Google search history is the most random assortment of things, I swear. Like, I think Google has got to be my most used app on my phone. And if someone saw my Google search history, they'd probably think I'm crazy because it's just all over the place. Maybe I should like do a whole podcast on my Google search history. That would be kind of fun. But I figured, you know, I'd make use of this curiosity that I have and make it into a new podcast series of sorts. It does not have a name. It's a very nameless series right now. So if you guys have any suggestions based on how we go with things here, Um, please DM me because I have absolutely no idea what to call it. It even took me months to come up with a podcast name. Like Thick and Thin did not happen overnight. I mulled over that for so long. And even still, like when I started the podcast, I was certain that Thick and Thin was like the stupidest name ever. I regretted it instantly. I was like, there's no going back now. And luckily, a lot of you guys liked it. So we stuck with it. So in said series, it'd probably be helpful if I tell you guys what the series is about. So in the series, I'll be debunking some generally confusing traditions slash just popular symbols from history, things that just are and we wonder sometimes like, oh, why is that the way it is? Why do we call it this? Why is this traditional? Why, why, why? So things like, why are bras a thing? When did having gray hair become such a faux pas? You know, men in dresses. 
what's with that? Or like, why did men stop wearing dresses? Or why is a man wearing a dress such a, a thing in pop culture? And why, why do people have such opinions about it? Who discovered coffee and who made it a morning essential? Things like that. Just the things that we catch ourselves wondering about for a fleeting moment during the day and then we forget to look into it deeper or Google just like scratches the surface and we don't really get the full the full deal. So recently, I feel like as I've been scrolling through Instagram and finding myself mindlessly scrolling through Instagram and even into Facebook, like I didn't really go on Facebook very much before quarantine, but I don't know, with all this time, I'm like, hmm, I wonder what my Facebook friends are up to. I digress. So I saw just throughout my scrolling a lot of proposals recently, a lot of marriage proposals. And I thought to myself, like, what the heck? So many quarantine proposals. It's basically an everyday occurrence on my feed these days that I see someone getting proposed to. And, you know, that and people announcing their pregnancies and things like that. It's also been very popular these days, um, just given quarantine probably. And I keep having these like weird stress dreams that I'm either pregnant or that I'm engaged to some random guy that I've never met. Like I keep having this recurring dream. And I know that it's just not even possible just knowing about the brain. It's not even possible to invent faces your brain can't invent faces. So when you're dreaming about someone, you have seen them at some point in your life, maybe on the street or in a movie, or you know the person from like second grade, like you've seen this face before. So that's what even scares me more that I'm getting engaged to this person that I have seen. And it's probably some random guy, like sweaty on the subway after work. Like, I don't know. (laughs) So that scares me. So I have been giving a lot of thought to weddings recently, even though I have zero romantic prospects at the moment. So does this mean that I'm past the point of boredom and going crazy? Probably. Please help me. But anyway, I figured that I would put this to good use and we'd start this series with the question that kind of sparked it all for me, which is why are wedding dresses traditionally in the Western world white? Like, why white? I'm so curious about this. I really just could not let it go, and I tried Googling it, and it was just like a rabbit hole that I fell down. It really spurred on this series to happen. In America, and many parts of the Western world at least, you know, wedding dresses are traditionally, in recent years at least, that I've known, you know, the the last 24 years, 25 years now of my life, I've known wedding dresses to be white in America, in Europe, in many parts of the West, You know, red is the color over in the east for a lot of places. Reddish or purplish is traditional over there. So what is with all of these colors? What do they mean? And I was just really curious about that. And then as I was looking into that, just an avalanche of questions kind of bombarded me. Like why why something blue? Why something borrowed? Why do people kneel on one knee when they're proposing? Why not two knees? Why one knee? Why all these things? And although, like I said, no romantic prospects, not getting engaged or married, anytime soon. I'm just genuinely curious about it. And so I figured maybe someone else out there is kind of curious too. So here we go. We are going to dive into this subject for the first episode of this nameless curiosity series. It's going to be good. I promise my research just guys, it just kept getting cooler and cooler as I was diving in, you know, just a single unmarried girl sitting here with, oh, so many questions and you guys are on the ride with us. So let's begin with the white wedding dress. So the first time that the white wedding dress 
question kind of hit my brain. I was sitting in the Starbucks drive-thru, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I think it was when I was sitting in the drive-thru last week. And I thought of this for the first time and then I kind of waved it off and then I thought of it again and I was like, wait a second, like I learned all this color theory stuff or like color symbolism and the meanings for different colors back in like middle school or something, in art class or whenever I was taking art most recently, which I feel like was middle school. Maybe high school actually I took an art class, I think, also. But one of those times, one of those years, I remember learning about color symbolism. And then also I think in English class, I learned about color symbolism as well because it was in a lot of the Shakespearean novels I was reading and things like that for class. So I had this knowledge buried somewhere in my mind and I tried to find it in there. And I kind of distinctly remembered, recalled white being a very like virginal color, very pure, like it meant purity and those sorts of things. And I did recall that and I googled to make sure that I was right and I believe that I was right. But yeah, so while wedding dresses did go on to kind of symbolize purity and virginity, it didn't start that way. And it was really cool to find out where it did come from. So we're going to get into that. But yeah, if you're thinking to yourself, Katie, come on, white, obviously it means purity and virginity and that's why wedding dresses are white most of the time on the Western side of things, but that is not the true root. Of course, it took hold in that somewhere down the line, which we will discuss, but it didn't start that way. For much of history, brides didn't even wear white. And like I said earlier, in many parts of the world, in China, in other parts of the East, brides don't wear white in general, maybe here and there, but it's not the traditional color. So in ancient Rome, actually, where marriages were kind of celebrated more as parties and feasts, of course, it was all kind of political, but there were huge parties, huge feasts. Brides wore these complicated six-part hairstyles, braided hairstyles called tutelus, which was then covered by an elaborate, vibrant veil that covered the bride from head to toe. And this veil was often described as being the color of a flame, according to this Italian website that I found that'll be linked in the show notes. So the color of flame, so like a yellowish and orangish, a very vibrant color, so not white. And essentially the brides themselves kind of acted as torches, bringing light and warmth into their new husband's home. And that was kind of the symbolism there. And another colorful situation happened over in Athens. So according to this 1988 article in Archaeology Magazine, Ancient Athenian brides wore long violet or light reddish robes, which were cinched at the waist by a knotted girdle. And girdles back then were basically a modern kind of like belt that was tied to keep your kind of toga on and not toga. Yeah, I guess it was a toga, but you know, your your uh, sheets and such. And the groom was meant to loosen that girdle later, which symbolized the loss of her virginity. And something interesting in both Athens and Rome, this knot situation, the knot was tied in the morning when the bride got dressed typically by her mother or someone close to her and this is apparently the reason why people say tying the knot that was so interesting to find out i always wondered like the knot there's a whole website or i guess it's a magazine and kind of wedding resource called the knot and i'm like why a knot like a knot in a cherry stem like what the heck so that was interesting to find out and from what i could find china was likely the first place where brides were kind of expected to wear a particular color as part of a stricter sort of tradition kind of thing for the most part throughout the other parts of the world people just got married in whatever they had it wasn't something very traditional. So like I said, based on what I found, China was the first place where brides were kind of expected to wear a certain color. 
And it was about 3,000 years ago during the Zhu Dynasty in China where both the bride and the groom wore black robes with red trim. And from there into the Tang Dynasty after that, so in this time period, the bride often wore green and the groom wore crimson red, which is interesting because today red is worn by most Chinese brides while the groom doesn't wear red, he often wears black. Um, and this red symbolizes happiness, life, and good fortune. Okay, back to that white wedding dress phenomenon. Where did this come from in the West? Why white if not solely for its color meaning of purity and virginity, why else would we choose to wear white? I mean, come on, it gets dirty easily. Like red wine on a white dress spells like terror. Honestly, it's probably the scariest thing ever. So why on earth would we choose white? Well, let's get into that. So the earliest recorded instance of a white wedding dress was worn by English Princess Philippa at her wedding to the Scandinavian King Eric in 1406. So way back, she wore this white tunic lined with ermine, which I recently learned is a short-tailed weasel, and squirrel fur. And the reason for the white color here was kind of unclear. It wasn't really symbolic of anything. She just wore this, and it was the first documented time where a bride wore white. Perhaps there were other times that just aren't really documented. This was in 1406, so way back. And then in 1558, Mary Queen of Scots wore white during her wedding to the soon-to-be King of France. And get this, this is the reason. So she wore white because it was her favorite color, apparently. Because, I mean, she was very fair. She had this vibrant auburn hair, and it really complemented that, like the white dress probably looked amazing and striking and despite the fact that so she wore white even though white was a color of mourning for French queens at the time so she really uh, shattered that glass ceiling didn't she her outfit was described in this book that I found the book was called lives of the queens of Scotland and English princesses and it was published between 1850 and 1859 so it's pretty old and it said quote a robe whiter than the lily but so glorious in its fashion and decorations that it would be difficult nay impossible for any pen to do justice to its details. So it was apparently very striking. I would love for someone to comment on my wedding outfit like that. <laughs> so still though, in this, we still don't really have a concrete reason for the white color besides it was just her favorite color. So let's keep digging. It's there. So apparently it wasn't until Queen Victoria, who for background was queen of the UK, of Great Britain, and Ireland for a grand total of 63 years and seven months. So when she was 20, she became the queen, and then until her death, she was queen. It was crazy. So when she stepped out on her wedding day wearing a white silk-spun gown in 1840, this was when the white dress tradition kind of truly began, I would say. And we'll try to forget that she was stepping out to marry her first cousin, Albert. Oof, let's skip past that minor cringy detail into the white dress. So at the time, according to an article by CNN Style, rich colors, so like richly vibrant colors, fur, elaborate gold embroidery, this was all the norm among aristocracy for wedding gowns. So Queen Victoria really did do something different. She really went against the norm in her own right with this simple white dress. It was accented with handmade lace and she notably ditched the traditional crown that they typically wore for a wreath of orange blossoms and myrtle. And this look was met with many puzzled looks. A lot of people were 
kind of devastated, honestly, because they're always expecting to turn around and see something super crazy by these aristocrats. And this was quite a letdown for people, given the elaborate outfits that people had seen in the past. And so it turns out, though, Victoria was making a statement with this simple take on a wedding gown. As many of us know, you know, people that are interested in the happenings of royals like myself, uh, royal weddings at this time, and honestly, for a while, up until very recently, were more about increasing wealth and forging political contracts than love. So aristocratic families typically took the opportunity to express their wealth and their status through the bride's wedding outfits. And so they kind of tried to make them as crazy and as lavish as possible to really serve as kind of a symbol of what is to come and how lavish and amazing this person's reign will be, etc. So according to that article that I referenced from CNN, Margaret of York's wedding dress, for example, from 1468 was, quote, reportedly so heavy with heirloom jewels that she had to be carried into the church. (laughs) I'm not sure how true that is, but (laughs) it sounds about right. If she has like a million heirloom jewels, those things are heavy. And then in 1816, Princess Charlotte wore a silver metallic gown embroidered with shells and flowers. Also sounds pretty heavy, which was said to have cost the equivalent of about 1.3 million US dollars at the time. So Victoria's simple white dress caused quite a stir in comparison to what had come before. But that was likely Victoria's point. She was only 20 years old and likely wanted to show that she wouldn't be putting jewels and all these frivolous things above the country's needs. This more simple choice for a wedding dress honestly really humanized her. It brought her down to earth with her subjects in comparison to the crazy elaborate dresses that came before hers. It almost seemed a bit more similar to the dresses that normal working class women of her time wore. Not saying it was like, You know, it was definitely elaborate in its own right for being a white dress. I've seen photos of it. It's really incredible. But it was definitely, you know, in comparison to the crazy, lavish, like jewel encrusted dresses, it definitely humanized her a lot. And so my respect for Victoria, really, it's really up there and it's about to grow because listen to this. She chose to wear this dress, which was actually trimmed with handmade lace from a small village to support the declining lace trade and help out the industry. And this was kind of the reason for the white dress choice. Besides the fact that it was more of a simple color in that time, required less dye, things like that. But also she decided that white was the best way to showcase this lace from the small village. You know, it showcased the lace in its best, purest, most beautiful form. So it's kind of (laughs) like Queen Victoria was supporting her local businesses. She was really killing it. So yeah, the stir that Victoria's dress caused, though, didn't start and end in Europe. News of this simple white dress swam overseas across the Atlantic, and in 1849, Godey's Ladies Book, which was basically the vogue of the Victorian world, according to CNN, wrote, Custom has decided from the earliest ages that white is the most fitting hue, whatever may be the material. It is an emblem of the purity and innocence of girlhood, and the unsullied heart she now yields to the chosen one. So it's kind of, honestly, in my mind, a game of telephone here, because that was not Victoria's intention, Queen Victoria's intention whatsoever with the white dress. Granted, she probably was pure for the most part, we think that, at age 20, and that was kind of the norm back then, but that wasn't the reason. That wasn't the reason at all. It was to support this small 
you know, lace trade and because she wanted to be less frivolous and less less vibrant because she wanted to humanize herself with the public. And that's kind of what we're led to believe by all these historical accounts. And so Godey's Ladies Book, or whatever it's called, uh, kind of misinterpreted this trend and really was like, we're going to go with this like pure and virginal story, and that's what we're going to tell. So <laughs> that is what made its way into the American mind, which honestly doesn't surprise me all that much because I feel like a lot of stuff is kind of you know, taken out of context and into a different interpretation as it just crosses to various places throughout the world. So that's why we have different languages and all sorts of different things. So yeah, but another layer to this white phenomenon was how difficult it was to achieve unless, of course, you had some serious cash. Um, you know, working class Americans of the 19th century got married in gowns that they already owned most of the time, like I said earlier, and white was hard to keep clean and to preserve. I mean, the average working class person didn't have a laundromat that could take out, you know, stains and such, and weddings were typically pretty messy ordeals, you know, it's wine, food, dancing, the dress would likely be ruined after just one wear and couldn't be passed down because of all the stains and such, and this just wasn't in budget for many women. And so people of the time just opted, you know, wanting to stay in tune with the trends, just tried to get their dresses as light as possible. And so I randomly stumbled across a 2012 issue of the Montana Magazine of Western History. Don't ask me how I found this. I don't know. I was just like really intensely searching for first-hand accounts. And although this is a 2012 issue, they reached out to people from the past, historians, etc. And so this documented various brides' 19th and 20th century weddings in Montana. And so a bride named Margaret Carter was showcased in the magazine as the wealthier end of things at this time in Montana. She wore a cream-colored silk dress trimmed with Spanish lace, a court train, and a long tulle veil when she walked down the aisle of a cathedral to marry a millionaire mine owner named Thomas Cruz, and this was in 1886. And so on the other end of things, the magazine also recounted the story of this woman named Mary Sheehan Ronan. She was on the other end of the spectrum because she represented a more typical wedding ensemble. She wore a home-sewn pearl gray dress for her 1873 wedding to newspaper editor Peter Ronan. She wrote in her journal, quote, I had dreams of a white dress with a train, a bridal veil, and a wreath of orange blossoms, kind of paying homage to Queen Victoria. But when the time actually came, I considered conventional things inharmonious with the simplicity and the unconventionality of our way of living. So she was thinking more realistically and... Honestly, she opted for still a very light-colored dress, if I'm picturing pearl gray correctly, but it wasn't white, although she longed for white. So it was something that people wanted because they wanted to go along with the trends, of course, but a lot of people couldn't afford it. And then, of course, kind of going down the timeline, we enter World War II, and things became even more bleak for wedding wear. In the Montana Magazine of Western History, a bride spoke about her choice of a salmon-colored ankle-length satin dress for her 1932 wedding and she said quote I could not in good conscience buy a fancy white dress that I would wear only once and then pack away in a trunk the one I chose I could wear to dances later I wore it a lot many women at the time only wore blouses and skirts when they were married so this was during World War II but then after World War II when things became more prosperous again the white gown became much more attainable and less frivolous and in the 1950s when the economy was booming and technology was advancing 
happening rapidly. The development of things like nylon and other materials that were much more affordable than a silk made it possible for more than just the wealthiest people to create the white wedding of their dreams. So long story short, the white dress's origin is much deeper than the long spun tale of virginity and purity. It was born from a series of a couple of bold women making a statement and then it became something that showcased a person's wealth and now it's simply a color trend that many have chosen to adopt but not all you know let's not forget sarah jessica parker's black wedding dress i just discovered this today she wore a black wedding dress which legend has it was right off of a rack not custom made she said in an interview and the first one that she saw supposedly and this was before carrie bradshaw was a household name this was back in 1997 and so sarah told marie claire in 2006 I was too embarrassed to get married in white and both Matthew and I, so Matthew, her husband, and I were reluctant to have people pay so much attention to us. Oh, that doesn't sound like Carrie. (laughs) Uh, But years later, she regretted the black wedding dress, actually. So in 2009, she told Harper's Bazaar that the one thing that she would do over if she were to renew her vows would be wearing white as opposed to black. And she said, I'd wear a beautiful, proper wedding dress like I should have worn that day. How interesting. I had no idea until I looked it up today. I think I've just, you know, so long ingrained that picture of Carrie Bradshaw and that huge elaborate dress with the the blue little like peacock feather in her hair in my mind that I just never thought that Sarah Jessica Parker wore black. Although we must recall that Carrie got a black engagement ring from Mr. Big at the end because she's unlike anyone else. Or was it at the end? I don't remember the sequence of events with that, actually. I need to rewatch that movie, but... She did wear a black engagement ring, so I wonder if that's kind of paying homage to Sarah Jessica Parker. It's so interesting, though, like thinking about the full history of things and how white was just such a coveted color, and it all kind of goes back to Queen Victoria. I think we have her to thank, truly. Of course, there was, you know, people here and there and the largely documented, like Mary Queen of Scots, who wore white and whatnot, but I think that Queen Victoria was the one who kind of set it as a fashion trend, and I think she did it on purpose. She knew that she would be, you know, her wedding would be documented in all of these accounts, and it would spread to other parts of the world. So maybe she was just trying to encourage maybe less of a a show, you know, and more of a simple sort of affair. And I don't know, of course, us Americans had to twist it into, oh, it's pure and it's virginal and all these things. It was definitely a message, a different sort of message, I think, though. She was trying to promote the lace trade and, you know, try to humanize herself because as a 20-year-old woman, young woman, she was just trying to show that she knew what she was doing. She might be more on the frugal side and think of the country's needs and not only the needs of her and her people and her people as being the, the rich people that want the jewels and the gems and the crazy heavy ensembles and she wanted to humanize herself a bit. So I do like that about her. I respect her for that. So that kind of wraps up the wedding dress chat. I think I mentioned this in a past episode, kind of my dream wedding dress. I don't know if I ever maybe have. It's going to be white. It's going to be a fitted sort of bodice, maybe strapless, and then a very big like princessy poofy skirt with a train. Like it's going to be extra. I think I'm going to have a black tie wedding. Like we'll see, but I think, I think so. And maybe either in the fall or winter and Yeah, that's kind of all I have in my head right now. I don't even know the bridesmaids dress colors or anything, but I guess I I don't really need to. I don't have a Pinterest board for it or anything, but no shame if you do. It's always fun thinking about that sort of thing. But it does make me think what will be considered traditional in another hundred years. 
And I do want to read this quote from this book that I just picked up recently. A follower told me to get this book. It's called Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino, and it's Reflections on Self-Delusion. She's an incredible uh, writer and editor. She writes for The New Yorker. I really love her stuff, and so I wanted to pick up this book. And I want to read this passage where she kind of touches on this. So this is on page 274, which is towards the end of the book. Well, it is the end of the book. It's like the last chunk of the book. And she goes into kind of just detail of how there's all these things that go into weddings in present day that never used to be a thing and how many hoops you have to jump through to throw a good wedding, so to speak. And there's all these different expenses that are going towards kind of just ridiculous things like fireworks on, you know, at your after party, which is like $5,000 for three to seven minutes, she writes. And then she also wrote that The Knot, uh, which is the wedding resource that I was talking about earlier in the episode, recommends underarm Botox before your wedding day, which is $1,500 a session. I'd never heard of that before. And then she said a friend of hers was recently quoted $27,000 for a single day of wedding photography, which is crazy. And so she just goes into to all of these different kind of things that are being done nowadays in present day. And she says, one day these will probably seem traditional too. So it's really crazy to think, you know, what will tradition say in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now, in 100 years from now, given the fact that there's so many things that didn't exist 100 years ago in the industry. So it's really interesting to think about just all of these newfound just ways that like, oh, women are doing this. And if they do this enough times, it, it becomes a trend. And then sometimes it becomes a tradition. So it's just really, really interesting stuff. So that is kind of all I'm going to say about the white wedding dress. Like I said, I think we can kind of say that Queen Victoria pretty much started it. And it's been going ever since in Western parts of the world, at least in the East. There's, of course, the red dresses, the purplish dresses, all sorts of different colored dresses. And over here, we got white (laughs) for the most part. But there are people that break that. And so the next thing that I really wanted to look into was the something blue, something borrowed, that sort of situation. I actually read this series of books called Something Blue and Something or Something Borrowed. Oh, it was that movie with Kate Hudson. And then it was also a book. It was a book first, I think. And I read that whole series. It was so good. And after reading those books and seeing the movie, I was really curious about the origin of the name. So there's a rhyme that originated in England during the Victorian era. So we're taking things back to our good friend, Queen Victoria. This period of time, like we said, uh, spanned from 1837 to 1901. And it goes like this. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, and a sixpence in her shoe. And so this rhyme essentially symbolized good luck for a bride on her wedding day. And so then and now, many brides like to incorporate all of these things into their special day for good luck. So think about Carrie Bradshaw's blue feather in her hair on the day of her wedding to Mr. Big. So legend has it that most of these components of the rhyme are actually meant to ward off the evil eye, which according to Reader's Digest was a curse passed through a malicious glare that could make a bride infertile. So infertility was the biggest, biggest fear back then because, of course, having children was, I mean, it is still super important to many families, but back then it was increasingly more important for a wife to have children. Like it was like you were a failure if you couldn't have children in older times when that was really the woman's job. And so I was really curious about, you know, why blue? That was really my main question. Like why something blue? And the answer actually takes us back to color symbolism. 
So the color blue stands for love, purity, and fidelity. So kind of going back to the pure vibes. And so the knot actually came up with uh, this comprehensive guide to the something blue, something borrowed rhyme. And so I read that. And according to them, back in the day, including something old in your wedding day was actually a sure way to ward off that evil eye and protect any future children that the couple might have. So that was the something old. And then something new offers optimism for the future, supposedly. And then something borrowed brings the couple good luck. So by borrowing something from a happily married friend or relative, the bride or couple kind of ensures that some of their good luck kind of rubs off on them. And in the old days, women would actually borrow an undergarment from a friend or relative uh, to wear and that kind of helped their fertility somehow. I really hope they meant a a bra and not underwear. That's kind of gross, but alas, that was tradition. And then lastly, the often forgotten ingredient of the whole thing, the sixpence in the shoe. So this, uh, it was a British coin, of course. Sixpence is uh, meant to represent prosperity for the couple Um, you know, in the future and like money and those things. And the sixpence was actually decommissioned in the UK back in 1980. So it's much harder to get now, but brides still try their best to find it and put it in their shoe or they'll substitute a penny instead. And some just disregard this part of the rhyme altogether. So sometimes it's just not even used. So this debunked set of wedding symbols uh, didn't honestly surprise me all that much. I was expecting something deeper than just something blue and blue being symbolism. I could not find anything deeper than that. So interesting. I'm still happy that I looked into it though. And so let's tackle one last tradition that I was really intrigued by. And this is why is it a tradition in a lot of places for the person proposing to kneel? So a few sources that I found kind of proclaimed that kneeling to propose came from medieval times and knighthood and the tradition of a man back in the day and still now but of course we know that you don't have to just be a man proposing to a woman there's all sorts of ways and all sorts of love out there and that's all great and all fine uh, just wanted to say that so the tradition of a man proposing on one knee or any person proposing on one knee Uh, but men back in the day because men were knights. And so based on many of the accounts that I found, um, you know, the, the kneeling kind of came from medieval knights bowing before noble women, as was customary. At this time, kneeling represented surrender and admiration. But apparently, that is not the full story. It's only a theory. And it's kind of a reach, if you ask me. You know, the kneeling to ask for someone's hand in marriage is actually a fairly recent phenomenon. So there's really no signs that point to medieval times in terms of like where this came from. You know, as we know, for many centuries, marriage was sort of a business proposal. You know, it was a joining of two families, not solely about the union of two people. It was more so like, the family union, you know, for wealth and for status and things like that. So kneeling wasn't really a thing then. It was more of a round table kind of discussion I'm picturing with families, you know, talking about dowries and things like that. And so kneeling wasn't even really a thing until more recently when proposals became more of a spectacle, you know, with diamond rings and all of those special things that weren't a thing for so many centuries. Like, you know, in Pride and Prejudice, does Mr. Darcy kneel when he's proposing to Lizzie? No. And in Romeo and Juliet, Juliet is the one that calls down from the balcony, basically saying like, hey, let's get married. You know, like, hey, propose to me. Um, So she wasn't kneeling. He, no one was kneeling in that scenario. And so kneeling to propose 
really doesn't have deeper roots than likely the early 20th century. Again, it was really hard for me to find. I was just obsessively Googling different years and trying to figure out if anyone was kneeling in any photos to propose. And I found a lot of just, you know, people standing next to each other and taking someone's hand, but not getting on the ground and kneeling. So it was kind of the early 1900s that I saw photos of people finally kneeling. So it doesn't really have deeper roots than that. Um, The knighthood theory is really just a theory. It's very unclear how the tradition really began. And it's likely that it didn't even happen until the late 1800s, early 1900s. And this was really shocking to me. You know, I I just thought it was so much deeper than that. And really, I, I can only kind of theorize or think to myself that it just means kind of, you know, lowering yourself and saying like it would be an honor. It's kind of like an honor sort of position and you know there's maybe roots in prayer and how when a noble person is nearby you bow and there's just certain little nuances there where it's kind of like I respect you and that's kind of just the only real symbolism I can think of you know kneeling shows like a sort of respect and asking someone to marry you shows respect as well so that's where I can kind of dig and find you know in terms of what I think But yeah, I told you guys on a previous episode, I think, um, about my ideal proposal, which I think, of course, I would like for my future husband to kneel uh, just for tradition's sake, because I do appreciate a tradition, but I hope it's not public. That would actually scare me so much. I'm hoping it's not. Um, But yeah, it's really crazy, though, that this will all be, you know, a memory someday and like tradition and all that stuff. And, you know, who knows what will actually occur and who knows what will change and You know, we'll discuss this time of our lives too with our future spouses and future children and who knows where our lives will go. It's so interesting to think. But anyway, that's kind of what I gathered from these three different curiosities that formed surrounding the wedding industry. But there's more. So next week on the podcast, I plan to dive into the subject of diamonds. A more dazzling, dazzling week is in store for us next week. We'll be talking about the history of diamonds, uh, why, you know, why a ring to propose, why an engagement ring, where'd that come from, why on the left hand, why a diamond for the most part, um, where do diamonds come from, how does one even harvest a diamond and make it into that shape. So there is so much to unpack there that I think I'm going to touch on mostly in next episode. We'll see. Might end up being a later one, but as far as uh, what I think is going to happen, we'll be talking about that next week. So it'll be a very sparkly week indeed. But yeah, that is kind of it for just, you know, debunking some little myths and things here and there, nuances in the wedding industry. I think it's really interesting to talk about this sitting here in 2020 because like I said, who knows where things will go in the next 100 years. So I hope that someone will reference this as like an artifact later on and be like, she thought it was so crazy that this was happening and then she had no idea it was coming. So yeah, Uh, anywho, that is it for this episode, guys. Thank you for listening and I hope to talk to you guys all next week. Hope you tune in. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.